hey, are you trying to recover and maybe even fall pregnant naturally? I thought that might be you. And if so, we have created our best ever yet resource for you. Totally free. This is a masterclass. I've called it my masterclass because I have put everything into this, right? This masterclass is designed for you if you have HA or have had HA and are dealing with suboptimal cycles and you're serious about restoring those babies to full optimization and you want to create the ideal foundation for a pregnancy. This is going to be for you. So in this masterclass, I'm going to provide you a lot of things, including a lot of case studies, mine, Ashley's and Mishi's, as well as lots of our past clients and what their challenges were and what they had to do to overcome it. And we cover a really wide variety of types of cases of HA. So everything from primary amenorrhea and missing periods for years and years to short-term amenorrhea and what we did to handle that situation as well and how long it took these people to go from HA to pregnant with this system and how long it took them to go from HA to ovulating, of course, with this system. So lots of information, lots of case studies, lots of stats. We go through why this is not a weight gain plan and how we actually divide you into phases, the three phases of HA and determine what your starting point is so that you have a good idea of where you need to start with your actual changes and lifestyle and nutrition changes. We even cover questions like HA and people with a normal BMI and recovery for people who have had HA for too long. There's so much in this 60-minute masterclass. Y'all, I'm impressed. And at the end, I'll also be running you through how to get a free HTMA, hair tissue mineral analysis through us, which is a part of our process for recovery and preconception clients that we're happily going to give you for free 99 as a massive thank you, of course, for joining the masterclass. So go to the hasociety.com forward slash masterclass or head to our website and you'll find a link for it and find when the next available presentation is going to be. That's the hasociety.com forward slash masterclass. Hey, and welcome to the Hypothalamic Amenorrhea Podcast, an adulting advice podcast production. I'm Danny Sheriff, and this is the place to come if you care about getting your period regularly. This podcast aims to educate, inform, and keep you motivated on your period and HA recovery track. Let's dive in. And guys, please remember that I am not a doctor and nothing on this show should be taken as medical advice. Always seek the advice of your physician. This episode is actually a recording of a replay from an event inside of the HA Society. We had Kaylee McDevitt come on. She's a registered dietitian. She's a really good friend of mine as well. And she's done a bunch of events for us, actually. She's just an incredible educator. And at the end of this event, I just felt like I am going to put this on the podcast. (laughs) She went over a bunch of topics. The subject was you know, was HRT, hormone replacement therapy, but she honestly just dives right into every important aspect you need to know about HA from how it's working, how it's working with your um, HPO access, how it's impacting your day-to-day life, 
she talks about lab testing she answers a bunch of my questions about lab testing and just so much more it was just a really really full episode it's kind of hard for me to explain but i just wanted to put it out here i think it's going to be super interesting for you if you have aj or if you're recovering no matter what so please just enjoy and remember that if you love events like this we host them inside of the ha society pretty frequently so make sure you're on the wait list for that if you are not already okay guys enjoy well, I'm excited to chat with this group again. Um, I know tonight we've got hormone replacement therapy on the agenda um, and also really why there's nothing, there's no alternative to eating more, resting more when it comes to recovering from HA. And um, I've got some visuals that I'll use for this because like I can't help myself. So I'm going to share my screen and we'll get into it because I really think we can't drive home the point of why hormone replacement therapy isn't the solution without backtracking for a second about what's going on and, and what mechanisms are at play because hormone replacement therapy is very much like a band-aid solution. And I just want to make that clear too. There's some pros as well. It's not all bad. And we'll talk about that too, but without further ado, I'll share my screen. Um, and if there are any questions or anything, just interrupt me. So totally informal. Like I said, we're going to talk really quick about the brain first to like lay the foundation of some of the arguments that I'll make here. And then we're going to go through hormone replacement therapy, what it is, how it works, pros and cons, and then finish this with why eating more and resting more is the solution here. Okay. So with HA, I think there's a lot of focus on not having regular periods. And even across women that are cycling regularly, the focus is typically on periods. Like that's what we talk about. We always talk about period symptoms and if it's coming, but I really want to remind everyone that the important question here is why am I not ovulating consistently? Or more importantly, what is preventing me from ovulating consistently? And I think ovulation in and of itself doesn't get the hype that it deserves, because really that's the focal point of the entire menstrual cycle. And when we are talking about HA, we're really just talking about not ovulating because without ovulation, there's no period. Um, and that ovulation has to come first. So I'm going to do a quick review of what's happening here. I know this isn't new to anybody, but I'll explain why I'm making these points. Um, and it's that it's not just about estrogen and progesterone. And when we talk about hormone replacement therapy a little bit later, that is estrogen and progesterone. And the reason why that's not a complete solution is because there are other hormones that are in play here when we're talking about consistent ovulation. So this is like a textbook chart of what's happening inside a roughly 28 day cycle. And you can see we've got two lines of hormones here. We've got our ovarian hormones that get a lot of air time. So estrogen and progesterone. And then we also have pituitary hormones. So this is coming out of the brain and that's FSH and LH. And in order for this entire process to happen, we first get a surge in estrogen. That's the first step. That surge in estrogen tells the brain, okay, we can get an LH surge going and proceed toward ovulation. So estrogen peaking is the first part. The next part is a peak from LH and that's actually releasing that egg during ovulation. So LH surge, if that's something you've ever tested on test strips, that's what that's measuring. That's why that's able to predict or uh, tell you whether or not you're ovulating, but an estrogen surge comes first. And then if ovulation happens, then we can start making progesterone. 
if and only if we ovulated. So it's this nice orchestrated choreographed dance really between the brain and the ovaries to enable this process to happen. So the brain is the stopgap in this process too. So we can have, and we can take those ovarian hormones, estrogen and progesterone till we're blue in the face. But if the brain's not on board with ovulation, it's not going to happen. So that's always going to be the stopping point in this cascade of events. And that's because we've got this whole thing called the HPO axis. Um, and that's the hypothalamus in the brain, talking to the pituitary in the brain, talking to the ovaries. And it's this communication chain that allows ovulation to occur. And when we think about brain and its ability to say yes or no to ovulation, we also have to talk about the fact that there are a couple other axes in the mix here. And we won't get too far in the weeds, but just know for your adrenals, for your ovaries and for your thyroid, this is top-down communication just like this every time. And the reason I bring this up is let's say we're under a lot of stress. So we're cranking through that HPA or adrenal axis all the time. And this could be work stress, life stress, financial stress, or it could be internal stress, like not enough food around, too much exercise and not enough recovery, um, nutrient deficiencies, not getting enough sleep. There are a ton of things, especially in 2020 and 2021, that could be adding to that stress bucket for you. And we make a lot of cortisol as a result. That's our stress hormone. Now, if cortisol is really high for a long time, we basically have a negative feedback loop that's shutting this down so that we don't keep cranking out cortisol to the end of time. And as a result, that negative feedback loop is going to slow not just the HPA axis, but also the ovarian and the thyroid axis. So that's the connecting piece between chronic unresolved stress and not making ovarian hormones. And that's really just because our brain is detecting things from its environment and making a decision that now is not a safe time to procreate in as simple terms as possible. So our input that the brain is constantly assessing is things like food, exercise. So together that would be energy availability, sleep and circadian rhythm, um, stress like day-to-day -day stress, uh, our thoughts and beliefs, our lifestyle, um, medications that we take. There are all kinds of things that our brain's always gathering input on. And basically it's got a master switch. And if the inputs look good, brain feels safe, we're gonna switch forward and ovulate. If the brain is not feeling safe, we're gonna switch the other way and not ovulate. So if we are to condense what's happening in HA, it could be one, two, or all of these things. Um, we are really most familiar with the under eating too much exercise and with the under eating, I should say also sometimes it's significant weight loss, um, poor sleep or circadian rhythm being out of alignment is a significant stress, um, high and unmanaged stress, things like hidden infections and inflammation can drive this, um, negative thoughts and beliefs, uh, nutrient deficiencies or mineral imbalances, all of these things essentially is telling the brain it's probably not safe for procreation and your brain's got your back. So it's going to tell the ovaries it's a no go for this month. Now it's not the time. And what really is happening is we're not getting an LH surge. So that ovulation isn't happening. Um, and with no LH surge, it doesn't matter if there was estrogen around that ovulation isn't going to occur. So you can think of your brain as the gatekeeper here. So hormone replacement therapy, 
This is, if you're unfamiliar with it, either oral or transdermal supplementation of progesterone and estrogen. Now it really should be both. So if this was ever something that was recommended to you or you were interested in pursuing, we wanna make sure that you have both on board because if we do estrogen alone, estrogen is a proliferative hormone and it can cause the endometrial lining to grow pretty rapidly. And without the stability of progesterone, we can run into some issues there. So it should always be both. Um, and the pros for providing hormone replacement therapy is we know that estrogen and progesterone give us a lot of benefits and we were designed to make estrogen and progesterone in pretty significant quantities. And that's really one of the main issues with HA is that we don't get a supply of these really vital hormones. So taking them exogenously means that we can get those benefits. So we're taking care of our bones, like bone density is a big thing with uh, low estrogen. So taking estrogen could help there. Um, obviously it can help support the symptoms that can come from low hormone output. So that can be um, like dry skin, hair loss, low libido, low mood. Those things can be supported by giving estrogen and progesterone. And we can also get periods and they're not true periods, but we can get bleeds from hormone replacement therapy. And that happens if we cycle on and off of the progesterone to mimic a menstrual cycle. So there are definitely some reasons and I understand the thought process behind doing this. And there are some interesting new theories about maybe using leptin as a hormone replacement therapy or figuring out how to use LH itself as hormone replacement therapy if we do it in, in um, pulses basically. But we're really not there yet in terms of studies or actual available products. Um, so what we've got is estrogen and progesterone. And what we can think of that for the time being is really symptom relief. So this is not a true solution though. Um, it does not trigger ovulation because basically your brain's like, I can't be fooled. I didn't make those hormones. This isn't happening. Um, it doesn't cure or resolve whatever underlying factors were contributing to HA. And that illusion of normalcy from the bleeds that we can get on HRT can stop somebody from continuing down their recovery rabbit holes of figuring out what was wrong. Um, so as a professional, I'm not a fan of it because it's masking the symptoms that the body was trying to give us that can clue us into what's going on. Um, I understand the benefits of it for sure. And maybe that's something that could be used temporarily, but it shouldn't be the end point in somebody's journey with HA because it's not a solution just the band-aid. So the solution is really make your brain feel safe. And the most obvious and the starting point for every single person is these first two with a star. Um, we have to eat enough consistently, and that might be considerably more food than we think we need. Um, especially if there's been a period of weight loss that's happened before, um, or yo-yo dieting, chronic dieting, anything like that, where we've restricted energy availability, we have to be eating enough consistently. Because when we think about safety signals to the brain, that's the biggest and strongest. And exercise has to be appropriate for the individual. Um, there are different schools of thought about HA recovery. And, and some people believe that we have to totally forego exercise and others think we can do it on a, on a safe basis. And I wouldn't say that there's a right answer for every person. It really depends on how you're coming into this. And it also depends on what your recovery and rest and food intake looks like. Um, some women might be able to walk. They might be able to, you know, a couple of times a week, strength train, low intensity, and other women may not be able to. So listening to your body, 
listening to recovery cues. And we'll talk about some signs and symptoms that things are improving, even if your cycle hasn't come back yet. And then always making sure that between exercise and nutrition, we have plenty of energy availability for the body. Now, once those are taken care of consistently, like I'm talking for months and months because these things don't resolve overnight, um, then we can start troubleshooting some other less obvious causes that the brain might not feel safe. So the next one, you know, taking care of your brain is, is obvious because the brain's calling the shots here, but like wearing a helmet when you need to be wearing a helmet, uh, doing the best that you can to not be bumping your head on things. And if you've had significant concussions or head traumas, considering working with somebody to get a brain MRI to make sure that's not what's driving this situation because a, a physical injury to the brain is definitely part of working up persistent HA, especially if enough food and scaling back on exercise doesn't bring your period back. Next is we've got to get adequate sleep. I think that that's a really like underrated tool here for managing stress, because if we get less than, you know, anywhere from seven to nine hours of sleep, or the quality of that sleep is really poor, that is a huge stressor on the body. And it's stressful enough that it throws off our ability to even manage blood sugar levels for the next day. So getting seven to nine hours of quality sleep on predictable timeframes. So having pretty consistent sleep and wake times keeps that circadian rhythm happy. Um, doing what you can to avoid blue light in the evening, see some sunlight during the day, that will do big things for keeping the brain happy. Uh, manage stress, always gonna be important. Um, I'm a huge fan of therapy. I also really enjoy breath work and meditation. Some people are really into journaling. You don't have to do all of those things, but if you are new to them, what I usually have my clients do is try one each week. And basically we're gonna check in on how we felt when we did each of them. And any of them that seemed like they moved the needle in the right direction, we'll keep and we'll drop the other ones. Cause I know that there's a lot of analysis paralysis on stress management because there's like a million tools we could be using. And sometimes that adds stress feeling like you've got to journal and meditate and do yoga and do breath work all in the same morning. Um, all that matters is that we pick one thing that makes you feel good and helps offload the stress of day-to-day -day life. Next, we want to rule out and address things like hidden inflammation, hidden infections, um, predominantly in the gut is where I see stuff like that. And I should also add here, this is where I'd also want to see what's going on with our, our micronutrients. Are there widespread vitamin deficiencies? Are there imbalances across our minerals that could be messing with ovulation? So we've got a whole bunch of things we could work up there. And then last but not least is auditing thoughts and beliefs. Um, what we believe is possible for us and what we believe is possible for our body is, is what happens. Like it is the case. So Having been on an HA journey for a long time can be hard to have the ability to think that it's possible for you to recover. And I'm not a therapist by training, so I can't offer any significant words of wisdom here other than if that's something that you struggle with, that needs to be taken really seriously. And maybe it's time to enlist the help of um, a coach, a therapist, um, start reading some mindset books. I'm a big fan of Joe Dispenza's work for working on thoughts and beliefs, but I think that that's a really important and powerful part of recovery from any condition, especially something like HA. 
So from a nutrition standpoint, um, some of the main points that I will always drive home with any of my clients with HA is we have to be at or above maintenance calories daily. Um, typically it's above maintenance calories daily for most women with HA. And there are no perfect calculators for this, but one I point people to often is the, um, if it fits your macros, women.org has a decent calculator. And the reason why it's decent is that it uses one of the main formulas that has the most research behind it. But even such, um, it's still just an estimate. It's not perfect. So if you are calculating your BMR, eating at or above that and not seeing your cycle come back, um, there's a good chance that that's just not quite high enough for you. So listening to yourself and the results that you're seeing is always going to trump what a calculator spits out because that's computer and we are humans and not computers. Um, we're gonna prioritize nutrient dense real foods. Um, you know, nutrients and nutrient sufficiency is a really important part of having the raw materials to make hormones. So we have to keep that in mind too. You know, as we're eating more food, we wanna make sure that we're getting the bang for our buck with nutrient dense options. We need to make sure that we're not lacking on any macronutrient category because I have seen some women get stuck where um, maybe they were doing keto or something for a while and lost some weight, also lost their cycle. They wanna go into HA recovery, so they're eating more, but they're still eating very low carb and you can get stuck there too. So we do wanna make sure that we've got a good balance of macronutrients once we've gotten comfortable with eating at or above maintenance. Um, from my experience, that ends up being typically at least 150 grams of carbs. And that's because there's uh, a connection between insulin production and pituitary hormone release. So we have to be eating enough carbohydrate to stimulate insulin production to use that to our benefit. And typically at least 60 grams of fat. And when we think about building blocks of hormones and raw materials, um, that's where fats come in. We manufacture our sex hormones out of cholesterol and we've got to have good healthy fats in our diet to be able to do that. Not to mention we need fats to absorb fat soluble vitamins, vitamin D, E, A, and K. And those are big heavy hitters. And then as uh, far as ruling out common deficiencies that can run into problems here, we'd be looking at vitamin D, um, iron deficiency anemia, um, B vitamins in general, but particularly B12, and then mineral imbalances too. So that's something that, um, especially if you've been on birth control in the past, can be a, a, a relevant piece of information for you. Something that I come across often in my clients is a copper toxicity, where we actually have too much free copper and um, we can't use the copper well because it's bio-unavailable to us. And that's something that can really, was that you, Danny? <laughs> That's what it sounds like. I had, um, I was like not absorbing any of my copper, but I yeah. had it in my system. So I was mm -hmm. like, I had too much. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. It's so, so common. And I think, I mean, we get exposed to quite a bit of copper, um, but especially any form of birth control because estrogen will increase copper retention. And if anyone's postpartum, we retain a lot of copper postpartum too. So it's a confusing thing because it will look like an excess of copper. Like there's too much free copper around and that can really piss off tissues of the body and interfere with brain communication. But from a cellular standpoint, it's actually deficiency of copper because we can't use it. We can't get it into the cells. So it's both. <laughs> yeah. This might be a side tangent, but I think mm -hmm. about it a lot is like how often we come across people who are like, I'm, I'm super low in this or I'm low in mm -hmm. that but I wonder how often it's actually this case. 
I know. Yeah, I know. It's, that's a great question and a good side tangent. And I think it's important to just remember that we can't look at any one nutrient in isolation because there are often cofactors that help with absorption and cofactors that help with utilization. So one lab test in isolation doesn't tell us a whole lot. They got to look at symptoms, what's going on like trend wise across the micronutrients. And if I'm being really picky, I'd like to see blood work and a hair test because then we're looking at blood and tissue. So it can get real complicated. And that's where like nutrient dense real food comes into play because in nature, these nutrients exist with their cofactors. Like when you eat some grass-fed liver, if you happen to like liver, which I don't, but I try to force myself, we get some copper from that, but we also get vitamin A in the preformed form so that we can actually use that copper and vitamin C. So it's fascinating because nature like knows what it's doing as usual. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I didn't know that about your story, Danny. And I ended up having to like take chlorophyll mm -hmm. and other things. And yeah, it was interesting. It's like actually this um, deficiency maybe over here is probably what's actually causing this deficiency over here. Mm -hmm. And so we get so focused on this one thing, but it's just always better to just step back and hit everything. Yeah. As good as you possibly can. Yeah. Like a big zoom out. Yeah. yeah. That's cool. All right. Um, so individual nutrients, which I know I just said, don't hone in on single nutrients, but ideally we're getting all of these from whole food sources. And then if we've got some lab work to suggest need for therapeutic dosage, that's where supplements come in and can be really helpful, but specific to ovulation, um, vitamins D and E are two fat soluble vitamins that play a really big role in that, um, a really big role in hormone production in general. And we have to be eating enough fat to actually absorb those vitamins. Um, so they are pretty commonly deficient, especially if anyone's coming from either like a low fat diet perspective, which is like anybody that grew up in the eighties and nineties, um, or if we have issues absorbing fats. So if we're not making enough stomach acid or enough digestive enzymes, we can run into problems there too. Uh, zinc and magnesium and selenium are three really important minerals for supporting ovulation and brain ovary communication. Vitamin C is a biggie. And when we talk about copper and not being able to use it right and having that dichotomy between like copper excess and biounavailable copper, vitamin C in the whole food form. So like how we would get it from citrus fruit, for example, is so helpful in the way that we use copper. And the vitamin C that we typically get from supplements, um, ascorbic acid actually does not help us use copper. So that's something to pay attention to as well. And um, if you see anything on Instagram about like adrenal cocktails, the beverages that you can drink, um, those are made from whole food, vitamin C, salt, and potassium. So the reason that that's there is because we need a lot of vitamin C with our adrenals. We also need a lot of electrolytes for our adrenals, but they help with the way that we metabolize and use copper, which is nice and it's tasty. B vitamins, super helpful. Um, iodine is important as well. That's like a very touchy mineral because everybody's kind of scared of iodine, but it is important and we need it. And then cholesterol. Cholesterol is the backbone for any of our steroid sex hormones. So if we don't have enough cholesterol, we won't be able to make them. So one of the things that I would advise anyone to do if they're dealing with HA is pull your most 
basic recent labs because you almost always get a lipid panel done when you have a physical or any kind of a routine visit that's looking at cholesterol and triglycerides and HDL and LDL and look at your cholesterol marker. We are never really told anything about cholesterol unless it's too high. And I remember like going through school and thinking all I needed to do was scan somebody's blood work. And if I didn't see a H telling me that it was high, I didn't need to care about it. But low cholesterol is pretty prevalent and an issue for hormone production. So anything less than 160 raises some red flags about not having enough for making hormones. And I see that a ton. It was definitely the case for me post birth control when I was struggling to get my cycle back. So you definitely want to look at that. And if you find that your cholesterol is low, first we go to dietary sources. So egg yolks, um, really anything that's got good quality, healthy fats is going to help. Uh, and then we want to look at, are we absorbing healthy fats? So making enough stomach acid, enough digestive enzymes. And then we also want to make sure that the liver is not super stressed out or that we provide some TLC to the liver because most of our cholesterol is actually manufactured in the liver. So um, cruciferous veggies, bitters, like bitter foods or taking digestive bitters can help support the liver. Castor oil packs are nice support for the liver. Milk thistle, those kinds of things can be nice liver support because it really has to be all three of those. So food, digestion, and liver to get enough cholesterol. Now, if you are looking for lab testing to try to pinpoint what's going on with HA, and I think lab testing is good for everybody, but especially if you've already spent several months working on the food and exercise piece, here's where you could go next. Um, routine labs are on the left. These are ones that should be much easier to request if you're going to go through your doctor and are more commonly covered by insurance. The ones on the right would be considered like alternative or advanced and typically you're not going to get these from your OBGYN or your primary care and these typically won't be covered by insurance. But what we're looking at here is basically just ruling out anything else that could be keeping the brain from feeling safe. So an unhappy thyroid, some sneaky inflammation, which is what C-reactive protein would tell us, um, blood sugar issues, nutrient deficiencies, and then um, looking at brain hormones to see if they're getting in the way. From an advanced testing standpoint, I put the HTMA, which is a hair tissue mineral analysis. It's the test Danny and I were just talking about at the top of the list because we get such interesting and valuable information about minerals and it is a very inexpensive test. The rest of these can get pretty pricey and they're great and they have their place, but HTMAs are so cost-effective and really in, in addition to blood work can give us um, a pretty comprehensive picture of what's going on with somebody's nutrients. GI map would be looking at anything that could be sneaky in your gut. So chronic infections, I know I've mentioned a few times as a source of stress, um, GI map would help us pick that up. There's micronutrient panels that would go above and beyond these basic minerals and vitamins here. Um, they would look at, you know, sometimes 30 to 40 different vitamins and minerals and typically functional status of them, which is interesting. Um, if you have gut issues and dealing with HA, it could be worth making sure celiac isn't part of the picture. And then with that comes other genetic tests that can be helpful for you. So looking at running like a 23andMe and plugging that into some of those third parties that will look at um, more specific nutritional SNPs. Um, I believe, oh yeah, signs are on the right track. So if your cycle hasn't come back yet, but you're like, I've been doing all the things, 
how do I know if I'm doing enough and I just need to give it more time? Um, energy levels picking up is a huge sign. That's a good indicator that your thyroid is happy. We're making energy. Our mitochondria are cranking out energy. Um, we're sleeping well. So we're not waking in the middle of the night. We're not dealing with hunger in the middle of the night. Um, we're not struggling to fall asleep. We're just falling asleep and staying asleep. Um, your interest in being active has increased. So maybe, you know, before going into recovery, you were thinking like, oh God, I, I can't imagine going to the gym. I'm just so low energy. And now you're noticing, oh, you know what? Like a workout actually sounds kind of nice or a walk sounds kind of nice. Uh, daily bowel movements, big, big indicator that metabolism and everything's going smoothly. Um, and with that, like no major digestive symptoms, we should notice mood is pretty good. Um, that's never going to be a hundred percent of the days. It's normal to have some fluctuation in mood, but overall we should feel like ourselves and shouldn't feel like we've got big swings there. Um, sex drive being present is a really big indicator of hormone production and just the body feeling safe. Um, we shouldn't feel preoccupied with food 24 seven, which can be the case if we come from a pretty restrictive background. And then we should start to notice our own hunger and fullness cues here. And those are not always around when we first start on this journey. And that's why I think it's so important to be able to estimate a, like a ballpark number where we should be falling so that we don't accidentally undereat because those hunger and fullness cues get suppressed if we're coming from a dieting background or even accidental undereating, and it can take some time for those to come back. So making sure that your bases are covered by estimating things in the beginning and then transitioning to a more intuitive approach as you go. Okay, that is it for my like formal slides here to answer those like two main questions, but I am happy to entertain any other questions, any other rabbit holes we can go down. Would you like some one-on-one -on -one support to get your cycle back? Or how about to get it back and then actually get pregnant? Or not even all that, but to simply get back your actual life and be able to leave this whole, where's my cycle nonsense behind you? I certainly have felt that way. So I know exactly what that's like. And that's why you can work with either me, Danny, or Ashley, my amazing co-coach, one-on-one. -on -one. We help women keep sight of what's most important in recovery, set tactical, tangible goals, and create game plans to help them get their cycles on track. And we would love to do that with you. So when you sign up with us, you will go over your history together, your biggest obstacles and your goals, and we'll start making a plan to reach them. Then, depending on your preference, you'll meet with us either weekly or bi-weekly to go over the week that was and plan again for the week ahead. So you always know what your next steps are and you always have the validation of a coach who doesn't just understand but has actually been through this as well and we've walked before you. Ashley and I have helped so many women get their cycles back, get pregnant and get back to life and we would love to help you get there too. And fun fact, all of our clients get access to the HA Society included in their coaching fee. So if you want to read more about um, other women's experiences, women that have worked with us and 
book a free 15-minute consult with me to see if we're a good fit, head to thehasociety.com forward slash coaching. That's thehasociety.com forward slash coaching. So I know that cholesterol can be high during pregnancy and breastfeeding, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. So is there any correlation to cholesterol being high even during a, um, you know, like this journey too? Because Mm -hmm. I know that a lot of hormones will like spike really high and then completely drop. Like I had my cortisol spike so high and then it completely dropped. And Mm -hmm. that was almost like two years apart, you know what I mean? To where, Mm -hmm. which makes sense. Cause like hormones aren't like, and then yesterday it was high and then tomorrow it's super low. You know what I mean? So Mm -hmm. it's always like, you never, I feel like it's like your rebound effect could come later if things Mm -hmm. are not like healed. You know what I mean? So I just wanted to pick your brain about why we would see high cholesterol during HA. Yeah. That's a really good question. So cholesterol can do some interesting things. Um, You actually tend to see high cholesterol in, um, in women with eating disorders. And I bring that up because Mm -hmm. not necessarily does everybody with HA have an eating disorder, but we have the overlap of not eating enough in both groups, basically not eating enough for your activity. And so the body in some mechanism that I'm not familiar with, so I can't go there is increasing cholesterol as a result of not getting enough food. So that's really interesting. And then also if the thyroid is not happy, it will raise cholesterol too. And the thyroid not being happy is always the compensation for not eating enough. So I think both of those run hand in hand. And that's probably why you can see fluctuations in in cholesterol based on, you know, how the body's responding to your intake and how that changes over time. So interesting that they would even see that in eating disorders. Mm -hmm. I know because you wouldn't think that, you know, from everything that we think about cholesterol, we're like, oh, Mm -hmm. you know, they, you would have to be eating all this fat, you know, to get high cholesterol. And it really has nothing to do with how much fat somebody eats. Right. Which means it has to be then also connected to like hormones, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Cause like those tank as well. So interesting. Okay. Thank you for entertaining that. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Good question. So I wrote this question down before you actually had a slide that kind of answered it, but Mm -hmm. let's re-answer it. Um, (laughs) How do you recommend that people go about discovering if they have an, a mineral imbalance? Mm. Yeah. Um, the best testing for this, because really we can't intuitively know, right? I wish we could. Somebody somewhere needs to come up with like a symptom questionnaire that'll spit out like what minerals are probably out of whack, but to my knowledge, that doesn't exist. So I really, really like HTMAs for mineral assessment specifically. And I'm trying to think if you can go direct to that company and order it yourself. I think there probably are. You worked with somebody when you got I do. Right? And I've sent a few girls actually managed to finagle um, like some clients getting the, the test and the results read out just from yeah. there without having to get like a big package. Yeah. Which is a nice little. It's great. Yeah. And there are quite a few practitioners that do that. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, there's a good friend of mine who's also in 
this Austin area. I'll have to introduce you guys at some point, but her Instagram goes by hormone healing RD. And she's one of my favorite sources for mineral information. She's just like run bajillions of those tests and just knows her stuff. And she definitely offers single sessions with the test. And then she's working on actually a course where you can enroll in the course, you get an HTMA and then it walks you through how to read it. Cause it's a pretty uh, difficult to interpret nice. test. So um, there are definitely people out there that provide that. So that would be my recommendation. You don't want to do it yourself and try to interpret it yourself. Cause it's no, I was like, how, when, when I discovered the art of interpreting it, I was like, yeah. how does anyone know how to do this? There needs to be like a little cheat sheet and maybe there is, but yeah, it, it looks complicated. Yeah. Okay. Do you know much about the connection? Cause you talked to you, you hit on carbs and you hit on um, fats there, mm -hmm. but I'm actually hearing a lot at the moment about the connection between protein mm -hmm. and how it can affect your cycle and seeing like some girls uh, improving ovulation spotting or even cycle spotting or short luteal phases with an increase in protein. Mm. Do you know what the correlation would be there? Um, let's see. I mean, protein is essential and it really did deserve a, a spot on that slide, you know, in hindsight. Um, I don't have any data to back like yeah. specific grams, but we need protein to make neurotransmitters. So if we use amino acids to make brain chemicals, and just like we can't look at vitamin D in isolation or any one nutrient, we really can't talk about any one hormone or brain chemical in isolation either. So there's a really good chance that protein is giving us brain chemical raw materials, which is part of this whole brain feeling safe. Um, we also build like antibodies out of protein too. So immune function and protein are tied closely together. Um, we need protein to take care of our adrenal glands. So. I typically like to see people around a hundred grams for protein for most adult women. Uh, it can get like way higher than that for some people, depending on yeah. how active they are, but a hundred grams is usually what I have people shoot for. Yeah. I've heard some like really problematic cycles been mm -hmm. recommended the one gram per pound of body yeah. weight, which is like a little higher That's than fun. regular average woman yeah. would be. That takes a concerted effort to get that much protein. Sure does, but we know how to do that, don't we, Ashley? We can eat that much protein. <laughs> Way too naturally. Yeah. Way too naturally. <laughs> um, all right. So you talk about like getting lab testing is great, mm -hmm. but what about the negative side of it? So mm -hmm. I see it also cause a lot of anxiety for people, especially people who are like trying to understand it without really having the tools or the knowledge to understand it. Yeah. Like, what are your thoughts and just advice that you can give as mm -hmm. someone who interprets labs for people about like interpreting their own labs and being so focused on what they say? Like, what oh, are the cons? Yeah, I think Ashley really actually brought this up. Um, oh. She said things are always in flux, right? Like there's really nothing you could measure that's going to be static and things change um, based on what's going on in your life. Things can change on blood work based on hydration. Like there's a lot of variables that go into play. So it's important with any type of testing that you do, even the fancy ones, like no test is perfect and no test is gospel. What matters is test results plus your lived experience. So your symptoms, and it always has to be a combination between the two. We can't just like take labs, interpret them as is and treat based on that. 
And that's why I think working with a practitioner is helpful because they don't have the emotional aspect of it being themselves mm -hmm. and they can zoom out and look at what's going on whole person, what's going on whole labs, like not one marker, but all of them and be able to piece together what is and isn't important because no test is perfect and what's going on with you physically trumps any lab marker that you get. So I think people get really hung up on labs. We in particular get a lot of, hey guys, I'm feeling really discouraged. My lab tests this month or whatever are lower than they were mm -hmm. when they started or they're exactly the same. Yeah. And a part of me wants to say, you know, they actually could be like the same or they could be better, but you've taken a snapshot in time mm -hmm. versus one other snapshot a month or two ago. Yep. And they like, what are the, the maximum possible variations in particular for like estrogen and progesterone? Cause those are the two and F, F and FSH and all of those, yeah. the main four. Um, those are the ones that people are like hyper-focusing on. Mm -hmm. And they're, I feel like they're seeing a slight, fluctuation that could basically mean yeah. nothing but what nothing what are what are the fluctuations like oh gosh I don't have a range that I can give uh, you but just know like based on the day like day of the month and time of day you're going to get different results and even labs like these labs don't have a hundred percent accuracy with their measurements either and I've had people get blood work like twice on the same day um, it's typically not hormone labs but like basic CBC or CMP stuff because maybe they went to the emergency room and then saw their doctor and labs were drawn like within 30 minutes of each other and look different. So there's so many things that can cause labs to look different and you'd really have to be checking your labs like every single day at the same time to actually be able to assess like how has this changed in the last month. And for women's health, you know, like it can take three months <laughs> of a single change to actually affect a cycle because of that whole 90 day life cycle of, of a follicle. So I understand because I've been there too with wanting to see improvements on paper because we want, we want something concrete that our efforts have been effective. But if we're not seeing the things that we want, we have to remember that lab tests fluctuate. Like there's a wide range of possibilities and a lot of things that can influence it. Mm -hmm. So would it be almost better to get I don't know, three, six months worth, and then actually look at them together at yeah. the trend that happened over time versus comparing the one that you're looking at right now to the very last one you did. Yep. yep. Yeah. Okay. That's like a very current topic right now. So, yeah. <laughs> um, and then if you just want to brain dump, like it doesn't matter if you actually even question it or like answer it. Like, I just want to like know around it about it. Mm -hmm. um so you know how hormones pulse right you know like yep. that you know like there's like an lh pulse and then like even progesterone right pulses mm -hmm. are there so one are there any other hormones that would be pulsing and hence why we have such a difference in labs you know what yeah. i mean like estrogen like i don't know if estrogen pulses i'm just wondering yeah yeah so that could literally like what like you caught your body in the mm -hmm. mid pulse like or yeah. it dropped or it's on its way back up and you just didn't you know what i mean yeah. Um, so one, which hormones pulse Two, like, um, is it like every hour? Not that you can even be like every hour on the hour. If I don't get my lab is done at 10 AM on right. the dot, I'm going <laughs> to miss my pulse. You know what I mean? Um, and then what would it affect it? Cause like you said, um, uh, our carb that like impacts our, 
um, I think it was the LH pulse, right? So mm -hmm. what other things would impact like these other pulses? Yeah. That's Three a really good question. question. Sorry. It's great. Again, <laughs> I might forget those parts, but it was really good. I like the way that your brain's working. So honestly, all of them are going to pulse to some extent. Um, we may not have like a, a true pulse like we do with LH or um, like estrogen, that peak that stimulates ovulation, but all of them are going to fluctuate over a 24 hour span of time and over the course of a month. So including things like thyroid hormone. So testing that at a specific time is important too. Um, a lot affects it. So dietary intake is going to affect the way these hormones look. Time of day affects the way these hormones look. For example, um, testosterone tends to be higher in the afternoon, which is why some people recommend like lifting in the afternoon because we'll get a better like androgen response to that. Um, thyroid hormone will fluctuate based on the time of day. Estrogen is going to change a lot based on where we are in the month. I'm not familiar with that changing based on time of day, but if we are nearing ovulation, it's going to go up. It'll also be higher if we've been like drinking more wine, having more coffee, like different things will increase circulating mm -hmm. estrogen. Um, progesterone you'll only see if ovulation happened and that has a distinct like rise and fall in those two weeks. So if someone was trying to see how much progesterone they were making. I mean, there's a huge fluctuation inside those two weeks. And if you checked it on the wrong day and it looked low, you might be really upset, but two days prior, it was probably beautiful. So there's just, again, that's why we can't treat lab data. Like it's some perfect diagnostic tool for what's going on with us. Cause it is literally one snapshot in time from a system that's always changing. Yeah random like anecdote, but my husband has to get just his platelets checked, you know, regularly, like every four months. And he just discovered that, you know, so he's are so elevated. It's insane. He has like over a million um, at any given time, but they went down to like 900 or 800,000 um, 800, or Yay. something like that. So still very high, but he was like, oh, yay. And they're like, oh, this is literally like in two hours time, you could be back over a million. <laughs> and he's like, oh, that's how much you're yeah. just, everything is changing the whole time. Yeah. <sighs> yeah, that's a good example. It just made me think of it. Um, oh, well, you had a slide that talked about like the symptoms that people can experience showing that they're on the right track. Yeah. When everyone starts to experience those at different times, which is definitely like a sore spot for some people are like, mm -hmm. Oh, my hunger didn't come back for ages or it hasn't come back mm -hmm. or I have no libido. Um, and I'm wondering what advice you might give or not even just advice, but like reassurance mm -hmm. you might give to people that it's okay that it's taking you a long time. Or like why might it be taking some people longer than others? Yeah. Um, it's definitely frustrating when you're in the camp where things are seemingly moving slower, but you know, the analogy of when you plant like a plant or a tree, for example, and it's buried underground and we're like staring at the ground and not seeing anything. And we're like, Oh God, nothing's happening because I'm not experiencing these symptoms that we could use this analogy to equate to that tree. It doesn't mean stuff's not going on underground or stuff's not going on internally. So not having those nice signs and symptoms coming in doesn't mean that things aren't moving in the right direction, but no two people are the same. 
and no two people's root cause are the same. So it, we can't expect people to improve on the same timeline. And we all have different stuff going on in our lives too. So if there's somebody with an extraordinary amount of stress, like life stress on top of what they're working on, we might see something moving slower. Or if there's like a huge change in nutrition that had to happen, like somebody going from vegan to not vegan. And, you know, there can be really dramatic changes that people have to make that can make different timelines. Um, so as best as you can, like celebrating the people around you, but also like blinders on your own journey, because all that really matters is what you're doing for yourself. And, you know, we can't predict timelines. I love that idea. I feel like, I don't know if you even implied this, but you talked about a tree at the very beginning. Mm -hmm. And I was like, yeah, what if you're, you're creating all these root work that's happening underground under the soil and you're like mad that the tree hasn't propped up mm -hmm. but once the tree pops up the roots are there and it's yep. yeah that makes sense it's like bamboo it. like bamboo what like takes like six years and all of a sudden it like shoots up oh i didn't know that but i like that cool yeah <laughs> let me google that just to make sure i like didn't make that up but i'm pretty sure i've heard that analogy where it's like it develops like this root system for years and years and all of a sudden it shoots up and then everyone wants a bamboo tree, but you don't want to wait the six years or something like that. That's hilarious. Like that. yeah, it's like the what tree are you quiz. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Some of them shoot up and then they're still working on their roots. Other people need roots first. So yeah. Um, Paula asked in the chat, sorry, she had typed it in just like, she wants to know about the accuracy of, of, um, ovulation strips and I suppose LH strips yeah um I would suppose that that's going to vary brand to brand a little bit in terms of like actual accuracy of those tests or the sensitivity of the tests like what um difference in LH can they pick up there are also some that will look at an estrogen peak first and then an LH peak which I tend to like to be able to see both um, but they're pretty good the only time I wouldn't encourage use of LH strips is if you suspect or have PCOS because in PCOS, LH is chronically high. That's part of the issue. So you're always gonna get a positive LH strip and it's not really gonna tell us much um, or you will often get a positive LH strip because it stays high. But otherwise I'm, I'm generally a pretty big fan of it. I don't have people doing this all the time because I think that that's like a ridiculous stressor on your life when we're looking at things that close but you know if you get your cycle back and you're trying to conceive or you just want to know i think it's yeah. a good tool if you say they're more of a helpful tool though because they don't really a hundred percent confirm right that you have ovulated so it's like right. a tool and mm -hmm. i think a, a lot of people rely on it as well yeah it's like yeah it's just trail. one of many tools it's not the tool yeah cool um let us know paula if that was efficient or if you have another question to elaborate on that. Uh, we're nearly done. What oh, random question? Why might a doctor check for prolactin in HAs? Mm, yeah, that's a good question. So prolactin can suppress ovulation if it's high. So prolactin is um, like, as the name implies, the hormone that we make when we breastfeed, we're making milk or lactating. So prolactin and most women, not all, but most women's periods are suppressed when they're breastfeeding. And it's because of prolactin. So if we have prolactin that's high when we're not breastfeeding, that could be impeding ovulation and presenting as HA when maybe it's not classical HA, it's just prolactin being too high. So stress can drive up prolactin. So if we have a whole lot of cortisol, a lot of times prolactin is high. 
um, pituitary tumors can cause prolactin to be high too. So, and I, I believe there are certain medications that can increase prolactin, but I can't off the top of my head pull any of those. So that's the reason why they'd want to look because if it's high prolactin, you don't want to be spinning your wheels with all of your HA recovery work, or maybe even investigating other things when really it was just that. Okay. So you said something like, uh, it, it's something that can make it look like HA, but mm -hmm. actually it's not HA. It's suppressed. Yeah. Um, high, high and I double checked bamboo. It takes five years. Oh, Chinese right. bamboo takes five years. This other one takes three. Either way, <laughs> analogy still works. I yeah, I feel like there's going to be an inspirational quote about that now that we know that information. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one of us will post about it soon. Yeah, <laughs> like don't be a special unicorn. You're a bamboo. You're a bamboo. All right. Yeah, you're not a special unicorn. You're a bamboo. You're not yeah. a oak tree that just drops an acorn and just like <laughs> screws your yard up completely obviously <laughs> i have personal issues yeah. got some trauma around oaks uh, my front yard i just can't um then uh, one more oh nope that was all my questions okay the rest was <laughs> notes <laughs> those are really good questions from all of you guys it was great Thank you. Uh, we really appreciate it. Those are um, going to be very helpful for people. I even think I want to um, post this as a podcast episode. Cool. I do. Very helpful. Sure. Sounds good. Thanks well, so much for having me and for curating you. this wonderful group. We do what we can. <laughs> um, I'll post a replay with where people can find you and reach okay. you. And yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much. I hope yeah, you have thank day. you. Good night, guys. Thank you so much for listening today, guys. Please subscribe to the podcast. And if you could head to iTunes specifically and leave a rating or review, that would help so much because it makes it easier for other people with HA who are Googling around to find the podcast really easily. So if you do that, you're doing a service to all of the women. <laughs>